Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. It's my pleasure to introduce you to tonight's Sydney Ideas event, Sydney Ideas being the University of Sydney's public events program. My name is Tim Sutpomasan and I'm a professor of practice here at the university. And tonight we have a political theorist, satirist and a journalist in a lecture theatre talking about press freedoms and democracy. Sounds like a joke, but that's what we're doing tonight. Uh, and there's been no shortage of events and developments to prompt us into asking some pretty serious questions about the state of press freedom and what it means for our liberal democratic culture. Uh, before we get into the substance of, of things, uh, can I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Uh, as I said, no shortage of developments on tonight's issue. You think of the raid on the ABC that was conducted by the Australian Federal Police earlier this year, raid on the home of Annika Smethurst, a News Corp journalist, the AFP analysing private flight records of yet another journalist. There was recent news about the Attorney General's Department uh, asking Channel 9 to pull a story about One Nation and a certain stripper-related controversy. Uh, just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, think of as well, the debates we have about free speech on campus. We've had a government-instituted review which has recommended the introduction of free speech codes for our universities. And, of course, we've had various debates about the limits of free speech, in particular the question of when certain forms of speech encroach into the realm of inciting or enabling hatred or discrimination. Just in the last few days, there's been extensive debate about how we talk about the influence of the Chinese Communist Party on Australian campuses. We've had extensive debate, too, about the israel Palau case, among other things. So how do we make sense of all this? Well, this evening, we've got an esteemed panel that will share with us their thoughts and, and expertise. Uh, joining me is Vicky Zhu. Journalist, Vicky covers the intersection of Australian and Chinese politics for the New York Times in Australia. Before joining the newspaper, she was a producer for the ABC, born in China and raised in China. She also tells jokes on stage when she's not working in journalism. And she was, as many of you would know, this year's inevitable inaugural Chaser lecturer. Will you please welcome Vicky? And we also have joining us Julian Morrow, no stranger to many of you, I'm sure, television writer and producer, comedian, media commentator, all-round nice guy, best known as a member and co-founder of the satirical media empire, The Chaser, uh, also founded Giant Dwarf, which is a theatre venue and comedy company. Some of his TV shows, The Election Chaser, CNN and N, The Chasers, War and Everything, The Hamster Wheel, and most recently, The Checkout. Will you please welcome Julian? 
So here's how tonight will go. I'm going to have a moderated discussion with Vicky and Julian, and there will be plenty of time for questions at the conclusion of tonight. If you're on Twitter as well, don't be afraid to join the conversation, hashtag Sydney Ideas, and if you're uh, too shy to ask a question here in the lecture feed, you can also pose a question via the Twitter feed because we'll be keeping an eye on that feed as well. Uh, but let me open this up, and, and I might go to you first, Vicky. Uh, I've talked about some of the the threats to press freedom in Australia. I haven't even started talking about the problems concerning press freedom around the world. Uh, what do you think is the biggest threat to press freedoms today, whether in Australia or the world? That's, you know, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. When I saw this question this afternoon on and I thought, wow, and uh, I think the biggest problem is probably um, that, that the press um, was, isn't free and was never free to start with. Um, and coming from China, it was the normality for me. It wasn't free. And But to my surprise, coming here, it doesn't seem very free either. And just this year, the AFP rated the ABC, and I just felt right at home. <laughs> And um, and some other significant threats, I suppose, is that um, in Australia, is, there's a culture of secrecy. Uh, we've got a huge problem with transparency, and especially with um, the passing of the um, uh, foreign interference legislation last year. Um, it's made, it's given the government more power over whistleblowers and journalists and um, that I consider a threat to our um, our uh, freedom of press here, uh, and also, I mean, I won't blab on, but also the, it's basically free to do work for the media, um, and the poor journalists, literally, um, that's also a threat to freedom of speech because no, if you know you don't pay them, no one is there to do the speech. Um, so yeah, Julian, your take? Um, well. I I mean, at one level, it's a funny uh, issue for me to engage in because I don't really think of myself as part of the, the press. Um, I kind of regard myself more as a, a, an abuser of free speech rather than the, 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 the free press. But um, there are threats at many levels at the moment. If you think about the challenges that we have in Australia, we're starting from a pretty good base. If you look at the... Um, uh, the press freedom rankings that are referenced in the um, the outline for this event. Australia came in 20, 21st, which was pretty good, well above, I was surprised to read, both the UK and the US. Um, China, 177th, uh, out of, I think, about 180 or so. So, But that's no surprise. But that, and, and, and I think that's a good sort of gauge of a starting point, that the... the the brutal reality of not having freedom of the press in places like China is the, the low point from which we can, um, uh, I suppose, measure the, the, the progress that uh, has happened in various places around the world. And yet, at the same time, it does feel like Australia is ebbing in a direction against freedom of the press and freedom uh, of speech. Uh, the raids are concerning. What they reflect to me, though, is this ballooning amount of legislation, national security legislation, which 
is always framed in terms of identifying new criminal offences with increasingly limited defences. Uh, and to me, that speaks to a, a problem which is harder to grasp, but I think equally important, which is there's not really a culture of, of rights uh, in Australia, I think, that we, we don't... We like to think of ourselves as anti-authoritarian, but we're pretty compliant uh, overall. And, and, we've got, and we've got no Bill of Rights. But exactly, yeah, yeah. Which is why I was surprised that we ranked much higher than America, because at least there is, there is clearly a flourishing culture of um, uh, freedom of speech and freedom of the press in America because of... And I, I think we should have a Bill of Rights on, on those rights. Guns, not so sure about, but, but freedom of speech uh, and assembly and the basics, I, I think that's a good thing to have. So. But I think that, there, that we are living in a time where institutions are losing their confidence in asserting these core rights. And I've certainly lived through times at the ABC where the ABC has uh, become far more concerned about publicity and adverse media than they have about the core principles in their charter. The core principles are great. You read the ABC charter and its editorial policies and you basically find the sorts of things you'd want to see. But um, whether there is a vibrant culture of people living up to those rights in those institutions, I think, I think we're, we're heading in a bad direction on that. So, so you're saying here that government overreach may not necessarily be to blame, but the institutions in media themselves might be to blame, Julian. Um, uh, whether it's to blame, I, I, I think that um, there is less... I, I think journos are pretty good at that, but um, management, not so much. And there is... When, when the business case of the... Um, the business models of the media are under pressure, then the lines get blurred a lot more. Um, so I, I, I do think that there's not as much clarity uh, and institutional support for freedom of the press as there, uh, as there was. Mm. What do you think, Vicky? I mean, do um, you agree with that? Definitely. I mean, uh, it, it, well, Australia is sort of famous and famous for its defamation laws. And I can say for sure um, in the newsrooms, you know, it, it is a topic of discussion. Are you going to get sued for that? Are you going to write about that? Do you expect to get sued? And so many of my articles, because they're focused on China, and um, just earlier this month on ABC, Four Corners, and Fairfax, they have lost a lawsuit to Chow Chak Wang, um, this Chinese businessman who was um, reportedly, you know, um, Engage, engaging in um, Chinese interference campaigns here in Australia. So uh, there's a lot of fear, not just among journalists, but more, you know, in these institutions. Our articles get legal, sections of them t get taken out. That is for sure a threat to um, freedom of press. And there have been instances where I had a good idea. My editor said, go ahead, write about that. And when the articles are finalized, I'm told, you know, don't run those articles because I might be seen as a reporter who's too focused on human rights. And I might be seen as an anti-China biased reporter. And, you know, this is partly because my managers have been trying to protect me to you know, not become the target of Chinese government and the, and the patriots, but but 
also, this is self-censorship because these media companies, they have a presence in China. They can't risk losing that presence and that investment in China. And that is something we need to think about. And that's something journalists need to speak up more about. And it is a shame. I can't and I don't want to name institutions or managers, but it is something that exists and it's happening regularly. Julian, do you agree with this? Uh, you, 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 you didn't say defamation law was the biggest threat to press freedoms, but how does it rate against the, the threat posed by national security legislative overreach? Um, they're very hard to gauge, but I, I think they are both serious threats. I've got a sort of mixed um, record with defamation law because I've been sued uh, a couple of times uh, and... Thankfully, I had the institutional support of ABC Legal who were on our, our, our side um, and we got out of most of those things okay. Um, uh, but at the same time, also, uh, my wife was defamed by Mark Latham uh, and I encouraged her to use defamation law. And, you know, Mark Latham is a, uh, I think, demonstrable misogynist. He targets women in his um, public uh, writings and usually the, um, any response eggs him on. Defamation law was one of the few things that actually did have a, uh, a, a thankful chilling effect um, in that instance. So I, I recognize that it cuts both ways, but the worst thing that could happen to you with any published content is to end up in a defamation, uh, in defamation litigation because the, the law is so abstruse and so geared in favor of plaintiffs that I do think it allows uh, powerful people and people with the means to get away with a hell of a lot more um, uh, in terms of controlling the way they're, they're written about. Yes, yeah. and, and I think my favourite example of defamation law abuse is, uh, is that case involving Fairfax Media where Fairfax and a, a, a restaurant critic had to pay out $600,000 yep. in damages because the reviewer had called a particular restaurant in Sydney uh, a, a blight on the culinary landscape and described the chicken dish there as being outstandingly dull. So $600,000 <laughs> uh, It is an absolute there. nonsense as well. And also, I mean, I've had my fair share of... Um, uh, reputation damaging uh, public utterances um, and what's amazing is that the defamation law doesn't actually measure what the real world effect on your um, reputation is it kind of works from the idea of what a reasonable person would, would think was the, uh, the the deleterious effect like when we did a um, uh, you know regrettable uh, uh, joke about um, the Make-A-Wish Foundation I knew what the impact of that was. We lost 250,000 viewers. It was really clear. Um, that was in no way, I mean, there were no defamation proceedings from that, but I've been in other, um, uh, or oh, the, the Chris Kenny uh, defamation proceedings where his lawyers were saying, well, this was, um, this affected opinions of, of Chris. And we knew that it had no impact um, on anyone's opinions from the, from the research, but that wasn't, that was of no interest to defamation law. Mm. So reform of defamation law is always mentioned as an obvious way to strengthen freedom of speech in Australia. Uh, but, but, but Vicky, in, in recent times, we've seen a united front from Australian media companies. Uh, just, just recently in the National Press Club, you had uh, the commercial TV stations, News Corp and the ABC, for example, uh, all recommending stronger protections 
for whistleblowers and having public interest protection for journalists. Uh, do you think this is a reform worth considering here in Australia right now? Yeah, absolutely. And as I mentioned before, you know, the foreign interference law, they were super helpful in um, basically rooting out foreign interference um, attempts by uh, authoritarian governments like China and Russia. But at the same time, they gave the government so much power um, that, you know, for especially journalists and whistleblowers, when um, they basically publish information that are deemed as harmful by the government, they could get into serious trouble, they could be persecuted, jailed. And that is something that we, um, that is honestly against um, the public interest. Um, and where else was I going with this? Um. <laughs> well, I think you're completely right. That it, it, the breadth of, the, of those provisions is really concerning. If you sort of, if you look at the headlines, it sounds like, oh, well, okay, yeah, we probably don't want um, overt foreign interference in our political system. But I, and I was look, I'm the sort of this is the sort of boring person I am. I was looking at the act earlier today. Um, but if you get to the like, there's an offence of reckless foreign interference, and if somebody engages in conduct which, um, and and they're reckless as to whether that conduct and the involvement of a, of a foreign principle could influence the exercise of an Australian democratic right, could influence, then you could, then you're um, potentially exposed to imprisonment for 15 years. Um, now, the, the security agencies will always say, well, we've got to find, you know, it's very hard to get convictions in these areas. Um, but I don't think the solution to that is always making the laws looser and the defences narrower. And that happens, that's been happening across the board. Um, there was uh, changes to federal legislation uh, last year, which potentially make it criminal to uh, impersonate a Centrelink officer in a sketch. Um, because you're using, you know, because you're impersonating an official of the Commonwealth. Uh, and again, the defences have been really narrowed um, and there aren't broad exclusions uh, like, you know, satirical or artistic purposes, which is the sort of language that used to be, uh, that was originally introduced into the Racial Discrimination, uh, Racial Discrimination Act and others over the years, that those exceptions are being narrowed. Mm. You know, that, that's a worry. You mentioned foreign interference. It's been an interesting week to observe the debate about foreign interference in Australia, uh, certainly from the perspective of a university. Uh, Vicky, you've uh, been reporting on some of the protests that we've seen in recent weeks tied with the Hong Kong democracy movement. Uh, there have been some criticisms from senior government officials in the federal political sphere about a foreign interference from the Chinese Communist Party in Australia, particularly in university campuses. Uh, the Vice Chancellor of this university on the weekend expressed his concern that there were overtones of white Australia entering into some of the debate on this issue. Uh, do you think there, are, there is a danger of overtones of white Australia entering uh, into this debate? How, how should we be conducting a debate about foreign inter interference in democracy and Australian politics right now? Right, and I, I think this has absolutely nothing to do with uh, white Australia policy. And, and I'm saying that as a Chinese person, look at me, you can believe me. <laughs> um, and I, I, I think the threats we've been seeing, right? So 
two weeks ago, I was at this um, so-called pro-China or um, anti-Hong Kong riots rally where um, a very large number of uh, Chinese government supporters, they went on, on the streets of Sydney. They, um, their banners say we are against violence in Hong Kong, but in fact, they were chanting in Mandarin, um, you know, long live China, and also they asked, um, you know, people who don't love China, they said, if you don't love China, you're our enemy and you need to get out. Uh, not clear to get out of Australia, Hong Kong, or else. Um, and they wished death upon those who support Hong Kong freedom or democracy, more democracy in Hong Kong, uh, which could be equate um, as to hate speech. And I think... And it's really worth noting that those who who participated in the, in those rallies were mostly university students from mainland China, and they contribute so much. I mean, in terms of revenue to our universities currently, and which I suspect is the reason why you know university officials could be a little uh, that's what Australia policy. Um, I think that sort of speech um, limits the freedom of speech in Australia in a way that you know those people, those Chinese government supporters, are the loudest. And since I have reported on the rally, since I have been become a target of the people in the rally, um, they doxed me, they sent threats to me, etc. I've had many Chinese students and also Australian students reaching out to me saying, you know, we don't have a space on Australian campus to say no to these people, to debate with these people because they're aggressive. Because, it, it, you know, they say they're from China, so they know everything about China and they know the best, but they don't. And it is our university's responsibility to educate um, the ones who are engaging in hate speech and ultranationalism. And it's also our university's responsibility to create a space where respectful um, debates could happen um, and to allow those who, you know, are actually here to enjoy freedom of speech and democracy to be able to enjoy those rights. I mean, this is a relatively new phenomenon, though, that we're seeing in Australian political debates, though, isn't it? We're seeing more overt and explicit expressions of Chinese nationalism and, and, and particular forms of national pride in some of these uh, protests and, and debates. Uh, you've described yourself, Vicky, as being a former Chinese nationalist who's uh, now become a human rights advocate. Um, many of you in the audience will be familiar with, with some of Vicky's experiences based on her writings, but for those um, in the audience who, who aren't, can you talk us through about what you mean by your own transition from being a self-described Chinese nationalist to a human rights advocate? Right. Um, so I came to Australia five years ago, and uh, not long after I went to the University of Melbourne and I became a student journalist. But for the first couple of years, I was highly, highly nationalistic. And um, you know, when I went to report on these pro-China rallies two weeks ago, I could see the you know 2016-15 version of myself being in those rallies because that is how the Chinese educational system work, and especially after in 1991 on. 
education reform, you know, right after 1989 Tiananmen Square uh, massacre crisis, whatever you call that. And so with such a strong dose of nationalism in the school curriculum, Chinese students are brought up, are, 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 are taught to, you know, the number one rule at school is to love your country, love your party without asking questions. And the number 10 is like, do not litter. So, you know, you get these students, they are in their minds and also in my mind back in a few years ago, I was, all I was trying to do was to be a decent, good person and defend my country. But with the Chinese media propaganda sort of like inciting, you know, more and more and more nationalism, you know, you got to defend your country when you're overseas. We see these protests and rallies where the students just get, you know, they get frustrated here because, you know, it's all of a sudden they're exposed to so much negative information about their country and they become very defensive. And that was exactly what I felt uh, when I first came here. You know, I heard about 1989 Tiananmen Square crisis and the, at first I was shocked, but then, you know, went back home and I did some research and I couldn't believe it. So my brain just sort of short-circuited and it made the decision that, you know, this got to be a CIA inside jab. It's okay to laugh. Um, and, you know, it takes a lot, like, it, it took, you know, my journalism work, it took me, like, actually going out and opening up my mind, talking to, like, refugees or, like, human rights advocates, talking to people, sitting down one-on-one to actually absorb, um, you know, new information about my own country. And so, you know, I wrote in, in the PNM piece published in the Sydney Morning Herald, I wrote, these students, as um, you know, as much as you want to hate them, as much as you think they are undermining the democracy here and the freedom of speech here, that we should send them back. Please think they are someone's children. They grew up in the environment where they were indoctrinated in a way they are victims, and you know they paid so much money to come here three, four times of the tuition of local students, and. Um, Frankly, I think they deserve a chance to to learn. And our universities, you know, before we say we need to take in more students, or before we say um, we need to send them back, you know, we could maybe try to focus on actually helping these students. On you know, in case they could, you know, they could become. I don't. I'm not trying to say I'm an example now, uh, but they could become like me. They could you know, be able to make a contribution here to the freedom of speech and freedom of press here. And I think that will be a wonderful thing. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, hearing you speak about that sort of, uh, the dynamic, uh, and it does get a bit tribal almost. Um, reminds me of something that David uh, Ma wrote about the Bill Henson controversy. Um, and he, he, he said, you know, you wonder why these things get so intense and it's because actually all the child uh, protection um, people and all the free speech people are having such a great time because they're just taking their side and being able to sort of go to the barricades. Um, and I thought that was really perceptive because it's actually harder to bring the temperature down and have the difficult, complicated conversation across the lines that we naturally gravitate to. And, and I say that as somebody who's devoted my career to making those conversations harder. Uh, but <laughs> um, but I, I, it does feel like when we're not, we've never been naturally very good at that, and, but maybe it's getting harder to do at the moment. 
And, and, and does the race element here make it harder at all, Julian? I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, how, how a satirist would, for example, consider a treatment of protests being conducted by uh, Chinese students. Uh, if you were to, to think about doing a satirical piece on this, uh, do, w would you be thinking consciously about the kind of critique that Michael Spence and, and, and others are providing about the, the state of the debate at the moment? Um, uh, with the greatest of respect to the Vice-Chancellor, I wouldn't be thinking of that critique because I thought that was just like over-the-top over nonsense. But, um, but, uh, but you do have to be very careful. I mean, you've got to be conscious of the fact that there is uh, a long and sorry history of explicitly racist... Um, both uh, political rhetoric, but then also cartooning and satire in Australia, and you've got to be very aware of that, and that does make things tricky. But but I don't think so, I don't think ignorance is a defence anymore. Um, on the scale of difficult issues to deal with, actually, the Hong Kong and China thing I think is easier than some of the others. Like, I, I find Islam much harder to deal with because at the, on the one hand, and, you know, the, the standard Jared Henderson thing is, well, you, wouldn't make, you make that joke about a Christian, but you wouldn't make that joke about um, a Muslim. And to some extent, that's because you're, you're satirising um, the predominant culture in Australia, and that sort of draws you to the powerful institutions. At the same time, I do think the prohibition on depicting the prophet... Um, Muhammad is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Uh, but I also think that it's only sensible to have caution in um, uh, trying to flagrantly make that point because, you know, when you're sitting at your computer and thinking about making a joke and you know there's a fair possibility there could be riots in Pakistan <laughs> at which people will die, um, you need to take that... Um, uh, you need to take that into into account very seriously. Uh, I was I was in Paris recently, and I went to the offices of Charlie Hebdo, and you know was reminded of the price that some people pay for those bold um, expressions of freedom of speech. And my sol my heart and my solidarity are entirely with them, ultimately. But I but I think we've got to be aware of the you know, the complications. Mm. Can I come back to you, Vicky, because you, you gave a pretty emphatic answer to the question about racism and whether there, were, there could be overtones of racism involved in uh, the, the debate about foreign interference and influence. Um, there'd, there'd be many Chinese Australians who would say that there is a problem with, with racism, in particular with the, uh, the, the fears that can be spread in public debate about those... Uh, from China or who have Chinese heritage and there, mm -hmm. there may not necessarily be a distinction between the Chinese Communist Party or people from China or Australians who have Chinese heritage. And can I just get your, yeah. your response to that? I mean, is there any validity to this view? Yes, yes, that is absolutely valid. And I think you're right. We absolutely have to distinguish um, China, the Chinese government, uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party, and its affiliates, and you know the Chinese Australians, and most the majority of the Chinese Australians who've been living here for over 100 years have nothing to do with this. 200, 200. Um, and I, I also wanted to make a point. You know, when we say you know it's okay that these Chinese students or are are engaging in hate speech here, 
we are being racist because it's not okay for white people to be racist here. Why do you think it's okay for Chinese students to be racist here? Are we like naturally intrinsically racist? And, and also, you know, it is also valid that the reporting of Chinese influence here has, I will admit, it has gone a little overboard. You know, I've read headlines like Manchu candidates in, you know, elections, and that's just not okay. And, and it's something we need to be cautious of. And I remember this one time, and I was working on a documentary about Chinese um, influence and I had this producer asking me, hey, hey Vicky, can you find us on um, some Chinese people singing red songs and um, we'll go film that this morning. Um, that's just not a thing that doesn't happen. It's, um, it's, a comp it's kind of like, you know, fr from what I can tell, it's a combination of ignorance. So like, you know, if Chinese influence does happen, if Chinese influence campaigns and interference do happen, where are they? You can't find that in the park with people singing red communist songs. Um, that's not it. Um, you gotta try harder. Um, but um, how to curb this sort of, you know, potential racism um, is, is something we need to continue to think about. And I also, I think one possible solution to help with this is to have more diversity in the newsroom because, um, you know, if I'm given the chance to find Chinese influence campaigns in Australia, I wouldn't go to a square or the streets to find red songs. I would try to dig a little deeper. And I think, you know, right now in the Australian media uh, landscape, there aren't, unfortunately, a lot of... Uh, diverse voices and people, you know, I'm so, so fortunate to be given the chance here. I'm not even the uh, native speaker of language, but I'm given the platform to speak. But a lot of my peers are not, um, and their abilities are limited, their hands are tight, but I do think they can play a much better role in, you know, helping this conversation and debate to be a little bit more um, balanced and not racist. And look, at the risk of being uh, labelled a stooge of state media, um, can I uh, uh, endorse on that front? Has anyone seen Waltzing the Dragon by Benjamin Law? Um, new documentary on ABC TV. It's about Ben's family story, but it also traces the, um, the history of immigration, of uh, the Chinese immigration to Australia. And it's fantastic. It has a light touch, but a really um, beautiful heart. But also what's, what's striking about it is you watch it and you go, we don't see much of this on Australian television. Um, and so I do think that diversity of representation is a real, uh, it, it's, a, it's a slow process which needs to be sped up. Mm. We had a screening of, of that very program, I think in this very theatre a few weeks ago, in fact. Uh, Julian, I want to return to something you, you touched on a few minutes ago, which was uh, the tribalism of protests, the, the idea that people really get off on uh, sticking to their guns and sticking it to the other side when it concerns cultural issues mm. and, and, and speech issues in particular. Um, to what extent do you think this is playing out at the moment when we're talking about, say, free speech on campus? I mean, is this just another manifestation of the never-ending culture wars we get in Australian politics? And I'm, and I'm referring here uh, to the, 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 the ideas thrown around about how uh, there is a culture of victimhood now uh, 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 setting in on, on campuses 
most notably in the United States, but there's a very real danger of this being imported and, and, and being introduced to Australian campuses and that trigger warnings and, uh, and, 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 and other uh, fashions in, in identity politics so-called are, are getting in the way of free speech. I mean, is this, an, is this an example of the tribalism you were talking about playing out? Um, I, I suspect that it is. I'm a little bit cautious to... to um comment in great detail on in terms of what's happening on campus because I'm just so far out of touch from that these days. Uh, I, I do re remember um, similar, similarly structured debates when I was on campus y years ago. Um, the, you know, Onisoir and uni politics were, they're always a very narrow fringe of the overall student um, body uh, and maybe the subjects are different but the uh, uh, the dynamic feels quite similar. I, I do feel like there, there's been a decline in robustness of conversation. But I am a little bit conflicted because, you know, oftentimes what people, the sort of speech that people stand up for, say is their right to free speech is just sort of ugly abuse and really shouldn't be defended. So, um, I'm, I think I'm, uh, in a very principled way, sitting on the fence on that one. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, Vicky, it's only been a few years since you were at the University of Melbourne. Um, <laughs> can you reflect on, on, on your thoughts here? I mean, is there an issue around, uh, around identity politics and victimhood on Australia? I bet you campuses? it's worse in Melbourne. It would be worse <laughs> in Victoria. <laughs> it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. And I remember in my days at the University of Melbourne, and I didn't... Um, I didn't engage a lot with my peers and because I started writing for the New York Times in my second year and, and I pretty much just sort of like hid myself away from my peers, especially, um, this sounds racist, but my Chinese peers, because a majority of them were in these Chinese clubs and, you know, from talking to them, I knew that they don't like um, Western media coverage. So I just sort of assumed they wouldn't like me. And that was pretty much the case, too. So tribalism, it does exist. And unfortunately, I didn't have a tribe because there are too few of us. Um, and, and unfortunately, that's still the case, you know, on... I, I've been talking to a student who's studying on a Master of Journalism in uh, at Melbourne Uni right now. She, uh, in Melbourne, there were also these ugly scenes and there were also these pro-China protests where um, actually the, the, the Chinese students attacked ABC um, cameraman during one of these protests for filming them. And this particular student journalist has been too scared to speak out, but she was abused. She has been targeted. It is a very, very lonely place to be when you're in Australia, when you're a Chinese student, and when you're sticking up for freedom of press or speech, and that's just um, kind of the sad reality here right now, yeah. yeah. And one of the things that was really um, so uh, just striking about Vicky's um, Chaser lecture last week was talking about the impact that that has, that's had for Vicky on her relationship with her family. Because one thing that is, I think, very distinctive about the potential for influence in Australia is that um, 
what Vicky does here can have consequences for her family. And I certainly know um, other uh, writers, artists, who essentially have had to cut themselves off from, the, from their family as a way of protecting themselves, but also protecting their family. Um, that's a whole new ball game. And you know, hearing Vicky talk about going to, to China recently and knowing, I mean, I think you said you knew it would be the last time. Yeah, right. But that, that is, um, that puts the sorts of conversations that we have in perspective, I think. Yeah. Well, there are always consequences, aren't there, to, mm. to exercising your freedoms. So, Julian, you mentioned earlier that you would describe yourself as an abuser of free speech. Um, uh, I'm just wondering if you can reflect on that and, and on whether members of the media, broadly defined here, not just journalists, but also satirists and writers such as yourselves, um, do, do members of the media have a responsibility in how they exercise their free speech? Um, and, and if so, what does that responsibility look like? Uh, well, um, absolutely yes. Uh, you have a responsibility... Um, and it kind of works at two levels. At one, there's the personal sort of moral ethical dimension to it, but then there's also the regulatory framework or the principles that you're, that you're guided by. Um, I think that um, I've been lucky to work at the ABC, which actually has really good editorial principles. Um, they can be waved in your face occasionally, but if you look down to the, the actual tests, they're asking the right questions. Uh, the big thing in, in satire is harm and offence. Um, and... It, the principle isn't that you should should cause no harm or offence. The principle, the question is, uh, can the harm or offence? Is there a real risk of harm or offence, and can it be justified by the context? Um, that's the right question, and a lot of the time it can. I think harm is more serious than offence. I'm much more comfortable with offence, and I think that people, um, uh, I, I, I think that we 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 shouldn't assume that just being offended is, should be prohibited. But I do think that um, humiliation, intimidation, are, um, shouldn't be sanctioned. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I jokingly say that, a lot of people say, oh, is there a line in comedy? Um, and, you know, the chase is always thought that there's a line, and we've normally discovered it by stopping, looking back over and going, oh, that was the line back there. <laughs> um, I actually think it's good to be trying to push the boundaries when it's in the context of satire. I'm not so sure about pushing the boundaries of um, intimidation and humiliation uh, when it comes to, to vilification. And I used to work as an employment lawyer running some of those cases, so I know how bad it, it gets. Um, but... Yeah, you have to. I think we need to know what the right principles are, and we need to push in the direction of those principles. I've made mistakes in the past, um, but I. But you know, I think you get you get better at making those judgments. Um, sometimes it's it's better to make mistakes in a small pool. We used to print the Chase newspaper. It was read by nobody. You know, we said it was read by like five thousand people, and and that was inflated by <laughs> roughly five thousand. Um, <laughs> but that made, but, but we made all sorts of terrible jokes in there. Um, but it was contained. It's a very different thing when you're on national television. And you know that your audience is going to be a couple of million people. Um, I think one of the problems now is that it's hard to have a sort of ring fenced mm. playground for those sorts of things, because if you write some article um, 
in your own newspaper or on Iswar, that could be on the front page of every paper the next day because things just get escalated so quickly. Um, so, yeah, you need to have principles, but you also need to have the latitude to make mistakes, I think. We'll come to questions very shortly, but before we do, I want to give Vicky a chance to, to jump in on this. Um, how have you gone about thinking about your responsibility? Responsibility... As a journalist and, and in exercising your freedom of speech. As a journalist, I really take this as a luxury, especially coming from China. And, you know, Julian has talked about the pressure that me and my family uh, have been receiving, but they're nothing compared to a lot other journalists who are currently in jail, who have passed away in jail. Um, and sometimes I feel a little ridiculous how much I can say and uh, you know also as a comedian I can get away with I've made millions and millions of made in China jokes and so, they're so cheap <laughs> <laughs> I try to take responsibility I um, for every made in China joke I try to do something nice to make up it's like a satire offset program yes <laughs> <laughs> and um and I suppose in journalism, there isn't much. It's always, the problem has always been like pushing the boundary, pushing my editors and pushing other people to please talk to me, please let me talk. It's a constant struggle to be able to have a say. Um, and I mean, in comedy clubs, I just let you know, I just say whatever. Um, so that's a, like, I guess in a way, comedy is my form of self-expression um, because there are just so many things you can't say in journalism. And when you do say them, it really saddens me. For example, I've written many, many times about, there are about a million um, Turkic Muslims uh, called the Uyghurs, including the Uyghurs, uh, in far Western China who are currently in, under detainment in those detention camps called re-education camps. I've written so many times about them, but every time these articles get published and I look at the comment section and I see Australians go, the, oh, mind you, the Amelian Muslims, about over a dozen of them are Australian residents and one an Australian citizen. And I see comments are like, how is this our business? Why do we care? They're Muslims. They deserve to be detained. And sometimes I just start to think, you know, I have exercised my responsibility, my freedom of speech, but this hasn't gone to anywhere. I didn't make anyone think. I didn't make anyone change their minds. And that just um, saddens me greatly. Yeah. Well, I don't know about that. I think we've certainly had a lot of food for, for thought tonight. Um, before we wrap up, I want to give... Julian and Vicky, uh, the final word. And is there anything, Julian, Vicky, that you would want to leave everyone here tonight with? Namely, uh, if there's one thing that we can do to enhance or protect press freedoms, what would it be? Julian? Uh, I, I think it... I mean, to, to me, it's about always defending a... a a, a robust um, free press and free speech culture, but doing it in a way that um, keeps keeps an eye on the nuance um, uh, and um, 
and use the economic power of free speech. Support free media. Subscribe to it. Pay for it. Um, because that, that actually helps as well. Yeah, I'm going to agree. Subscribe to papers and pay for them because the, the, we are so poor and have no money to investigate stories and it's miserable. Uh, so. <laughs> well, on, on that note... Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I just want your credit cards, really. Go, go, <laughs> go check out your subscriptions, take a look, uh, engage in debate and, and, and as always, keep an eye out for the next... Sydney Ideas event. We look forward to seeing you. Will you join me in thanking Julian Morrow and Vicky Chu? And thanks to Tim as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.